Electronic Specifier. Hello and welcome back to Electronic Specifier Insights. Today we're joined by Richard Fletcher from Ignis. Hello Richard and welcome. Hi there. As the Managing Director of Ignis, would you like to introduce yourself and explain a little bit about what your company is all about? Yeah, no problem. So I've been... I did a degree in hardware electronics at Aston and was in the fortunate position of then moving to a job with a design team at Marconi, which was a real baptism of fire that you come out of university thinking that you know everything, having a great degree from a good uni, and you realise that there's a whole lot of more clever people that have done this and been there around. So having sort of cut my teeth doing various bits of electronics in uh, the telecom space, happened to be at the time of the dot-com bubble, so we had a, a good couple of years and then a, a, a fairly hard few years after that. I then moved on to a research and development establishment, which is PIRA, doing funded research and in a combination of project management and electronics and a bit of software. Moved on again into a SME doing alarm type products. And so I developed there from R&D manager through to technical director. And throughout all of this, I saw that there was a lot of demand for the skills and there was never enough good engineers, but there's also peaks and troughs in, in requirements. So you've got a product, you've got an idea, you developed it, then what? And so after a while, I figured that the right thing probably for me then is to go and start a business that can help companies that don't have access to all of that resource, because I don't think companies necessarily need full-time engineering resource unless you're big and you've got a big roadmap there's not a lot of point and also if you've employed one engineer you need a diverse set of skill sets and so that one engineer can't necessarily be great at every single part so i set out thinking wouldn't it be fun if we could do things that would take that spark of an idea and help companies get it to market there's nothing better than seeing the product that you've worked on from that sort of whiteboard or back of an envelope stage actually being on the telly or being in use in real life, solving a really meaningful problem. So I decided to set that business up and I've surrounded myself with really competent, far better engineers than I could ever have been. And all aligned really of delivering stuff with, with a view of making the world a better place. So we try and use engineering as a force for good. Pleased to hear that. <laughs> we need a bit more good in the world at the moment. One of the focuses of this interview will be on the advice that Ignis provides on its website, particularly its blog pages. Would you like to explain some examples of the information that engineers and other industry experts and what the main focus of the aims of your company's blog and other resources are? The main focus of our blog and the point of it is to put good, useful information out into the engineering space. So we've got a whole whole mix and match of different subjects, different areas that our engineers like talking about the things that they do. And we we can make a bigger impact on the world if it's not just the select bunch of customers that we're directly working with. If we can help by providing information into sort of the engineering world and our experiences, I think that's a, it's a good thing. So some of it is around sort of bringing great ideas to life and the process around sort of engineering. We've got great sort of, sometimes we go into big guides. Once, you, once we start writing a thing, sometimes it ends up as quite a big lengthy guide. So there's, there's a recent one about FPGA design. We've got ones around feasibility studies, design reviews, trying to sort of output our experience in a way that can be useful to other people. That if you Google for a thing, then you've got a resource that 
is done by people who are doing this every day. We sort of live and breathe it. So we've got some quirky topics on there, like Fletcher's Law. Um, that's a thing that I invented, um, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it says like the quality of your first prototypes is inversely proportional to the number of prototypes you first make. If you make 10, you're probably in the right space to actually get those up and working. If you're under pressure to make 100, that's reflective of we've started the project late, we need to get these out, it's an emergency, it's a panic, we don't have time to do the design review, we don't have time to necessarily take all of the care that we need to take care of. And so the how many are we making, we need 100 to start with, really shows that that project probably isn't under that much control. And it also means that any errors found on the board or any problems found on the board, and let's face it, there's always something with the first models of electronics because of the complexity. It now means you're reworking all of them or putting most of them in the bin. So we try and sort of not be boring with the information. So if there's a way of putting it across that makes it a little bit more interesting to read, we try and do that, have a little bit of fun with it. Because I think sometimes whilst engineering is a really interesting subject, it can come across a little dry. I can hear that. <laughs> it is notable on your website that there's a particular focus on chip shortages, along with your company's advice to engineers and developers based on such shortages. Before we focus on it in more detail, would you like to provide a brief overview of the Ignis blog page, how to tackle chip shortages and design for availability? Yeah, not a problem. So the blog was come out of the frustrations, of the chip shortages that we were all feeling. And we were we, we felt it really important to make sure that people were aware of it. it. It wasn't hurting us as much as it would be hurting our end customers. And there was a lot of people completely unaware because they weren't in that particular that they weren't in that cycle or they might not have been manufacturing at that point. So we felt it really important to go, just check. If do some forecasting, make sure that you've got the things that you need. Don't just assume that everything's okay. There's a problem here. And I think not hiding from problems is a really important part of this. So we started to talk then about design for availability in terms of so we, we coined the phrase to start with as as well as design, design for test and manufacture that's very clearly out there, design for availability sort of puts that on its head a little bit and says, whilst you may have the ideal chips of all the uh, chip shortages, you may well have gone, I need exactly that part because it's the right use of the various IP cores or it's a various use of pinouts. At this point, you don't have that luxury. You don't necessarily have that choice. And so you're having to make compromises for, it's a pragmatic choice of what can I actually buy? So if I can't buy the thing, I can do all the design work in the world, and you don't have a product, you've just spent more money. So we were looking at how we solve that. And so the blog really is something that we try to do to educate people, to show people that there is a problem. And I don't, we don't like going, oh, you've got a problem and here's some bad news. But also we felt it would be wrong to not make sure that people were aware of it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, I don't think chip shortages are going away anytime soon. Unfortunately not. No. To quote and paraphrase slightly from Ignis's How to Tackle Chip Shortages blog article, the component forecast the 2019-2020 period was that the effect of COVID-19 would lead to a drop in demand for components, which turned out to be wildly inaccurate. It was wrongfully assumed that customers would hoard their savings due to financial uncertainty and everyone would stop creating new cutting-edge electronic products because they would see it as too risky during a global pandemic. 
What do you think that members of the industry can do to look out for misleading information and false assumptions that there are concerns of a component shortage? In other words, what's your advice on finding and researching the most reliable resources when it comes to component supply and demand forecasts? So we found quite a few issues around finding out the information. Unfortunately, I think the manufacturers are struggling to keep up with the demand as we know, and the demand can evaporate within seconds. And so our view has been not to rely on a website. We have so many in stock. It's a nice indication. And if you go and have a look at the moment, you can see there's lots of zeros available on all of the common websites. But at the time, it wasn't true. They, they, they could show thousands in stock, but because people were then buying them, we had a case where there was a customer that we'd found um, items for that in the time it took for the credit card to be approved, someone else had bought them. It was that silly and that that quick. So it's very much talking to, it depends on your scale. If you're, if you're not making high volume, you won't necessarily have the luxury of talking to the manufacturer directly. But it's then talking to whoever's got the closest connection to that manufacturer. So usually distributors, maybe CEMs, and it's getting, it's not relying on, oh, it looks like there's a few here. It's actually getting it and then following it up with actually placing orders for it to make sure that's secure. Because what's available today is almost certainly not going to be available tomorrow. It's like a minefield, isn't it? We've taken to making sure that every item is available before it even goes on the schematic. Because by the time we've drawn the symbol and drawn it on the schematic, it doesn't exist. And it's a fruitless effort. So it adds more time to the upfront design piece. And it also gives customers a bit of a headache of cash flow potentially, or certainly demand forecasting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another quote we paraphrased um, from your chip shortages blog, there is no doubt that the chip shortages are having global ramifications. The changes will impact anyone who needs electronics design as part of their product development process. But if you're a startup, you will be doubly impacted by the ship shortages. Could you explain why startups are especially affected by component shortages and what your advice is to such new companies in terms of how they can prepare themselves for the supply and demand pitfalls? And they could be facing that now and in the future? Yeah, sure. So with established businesses, they've already got a run rate. They've already got something to base forecasts on. They have a credit reputation that means that they can be demonstrate their credit worthy of supply. When you're a startup, you don't really know. You, you, you have some pretty graphs that you hope you might follow, but you don't really know how many you're going to be selling or what your year one and year two figures look like. You're not iterating an existing product by adding a few features. And so everything is from ground zero, start from scratch. Talking to anybody in the supply chain, they're unlikely to grant you credit, especially when there's pressure from bigger companies that can be a lot more safe bet. So you have that threat of, I can't, I have to physically buy these. I have to not just commit to it and say, I'll, I'll be good for them later on. You have to buy them. So you, you've got no revenue, yet you're trying to get hold of components for a forecast that you are uncertain about. And you're trying to, you, you can make prototypes, you can make small runs. But when that small run goes from a few to a few hundred, you could find that you've, you, you can't make anymore. 
uh, it's always a tricky place to find yourself. <laughs> yeah, so I think the key bit there is to make sure that you're only designing in the features that you need. You're not putting extra devices on the board for the sake of it because of an aspirational thing later on. You may well have to say version one is just this core set of functionality and then we'll follow up with version two as we as we go along. It's also that you can probably use funding sources. So people like T-Bar or other companies to then get some grant funding or get some other investment into the business to support what you're doing. And embrace some value engineering from the beginning. Don't design costs in and parts in that you simply don't need. Ignis has on its site, it's one of your own. What is a product design review and why do you need one? Along with the definition of a product design review, what would you like to give an overview of this blog page with some of the most important points that you wanted to communicate when you wrote the piece? Product design review, that... That acknowledges that there's more than one sort of design review that you can do. So electronics is one, code, functionality, completeness. We wanted to make sure that you are playing to your strengths when you do design reviews. We, we break them out so we will have a, a separate software review, a separate hardware review. We even have different hardware reviews in what we do. So we will typically have a schematic review. And the intent of that is to make sure that that schematic is right before it goes to PCB layout. Because if you then review it after it's gone to PCB layout, any errors you find then upset PCB layout. The same from PCB into manufacturing pack or prototyping pack. Let's make sure we've output all the layers and the bill of materials is correct and there's, there's no errors there. And so it's also for the what. What was the functionality of the product? Have we included the functionality? Have we forgotten? Because it's really easy to forget stuff. We've, we've been busy solving a really complex engineering problem and we've forgotten there might need to be a Wi-Fi module on there. Or we've forgotten there's another four menus that need to be hidden away. That So it's, made, it's that check and that belt and braces check that the product um, hangs together, is going to work. And it's the acknowledgement that it's various different areas. We tend to also make sure that because each reviewer will have their own favorite areas to review, you can have really variable consistency on what has got checked. And so we do that with, with a growing checklist so that every time we found something that's bitten us that we could have perhaps seen in the design review, that gets added in. So whilst the, the lists get longer, it means that we have one consistent view of, we know that has been reviewed, not Bob's reviewed it. So the power supplies won't have been looked at, but the high speed interface will have been. It's we've reviewed it in a nice consistent way okay as your product design review blog page explains it's vital to leave egos outside especially upon entering company culture there is a danger that design reviews can become a point scoring competitive exercise design reviews aren't for, aren't for proving who's the cleverest engineer nor for the i wouldn't have done it like that brigade with each party's skill set and qualifications in mind what do you think is the best way to ensure that there's the right dynamic between a design engineer and their product design reviewer? I think a lot of this comes down to culture. I think there has to be a culture of we are doing this together in order to make sure that the product has the best chance of success. It minimises risk. It's not a I've got another department that has a vested interest in showing that my work isn't very good. 
And so if we, when you come together to say, what can we do here that means that our prototyping is de-risked? And that's especially important at the moment because if you've only got a certain amount of chips on the, for available, you don't want to be having to take them off a board and put them on another board if you've got it wrong. So you want to come out with your first off prototypes having some chance of actually working. So somebody else going through and getting rid of the gotchas. So the ego bit, take the competition out and make sure if, if you know that somebody is brilliant at this area, get them to look at that area and use it as a learning exercise. This is a way of getting extra learning into the team, of spreading knowledge about the product internally and getting someone else to go, why have you done it like that? Not why have you done it like that? You're an idiot. But why have you done it like that? I'm interested to know because maybe I can learn something. Maybe I know something that you've missed. It's, it's, it's a classic. You can write a Word document, can't you? You can just write a piece of, you come back to it and you read it a few weeks later and you can spot all the errors. But you can't see it that day. So there's a benefit of having that collaborative approach that means we're doing this together to, for the greater good, not to show how clever or how daft or to, to point score between each other. Perfect. Um, what are the main problems that you find are flagged during the design review process? I think when we end up doing a design review, that's usually because there's been an, an issue that the company can't solve or there's a lack of confidence internally. And I think that comes from a shift in how products are innovated. We used to have products that you would be part of a team of 100 people with loads of experience. Well, now you might be the only engineer within the business. And so you only know what you know. So you've got a very sort of myopic view based on what you've previously done. So we find there's all manner of things that can go wrong in design, obviously. Some of the key ones are not designing for manufacture. So there'll be no consideration of how's this board going to be made? So copper balance or EMC. There'd be no thought that there's been sort of that no one's thought about how the, how the planes stack up or how, how it's laid out. Also, power supplies are a favorite for people to not necessarily get right. So they seem to be black magic for some reason. So we have make sure sort of that's gonna be right working. It, has it got enough margin in it? Has it been toleranced? Does it generally work? One of the things that we find can help these is having nicely drawn schematics. We're a little bit, I don't want to say picky, but we're a internally, the schematic should tell a story. I should be able to pick up a schematic, and whilst I probably will need to reference other information, it should give me an idea of what device is that? How is all this working? We, we go to the extent of making sure that each one's sort of blocked out into functional elements, because you want to pick it up. Either you want to pick it up in six months' time when you've done a whole lot of other jobs and come back and forgotten about it, or someone else needs to pick it up and understand what's gone on. Okay. Um... What are some of your main points of advice to engineers who are new to product design reviews, but would especially benefit from appreciating their value? Like, make sure the thing that's going to be reviewed is complete. So if you're trying to review half complete, I've almost finished work. Well, half the review comments are probably going to be, this is missing, this isn't there, you haven't finished this off, which is sort of ineffective and pointless because everybody sort of knew that. So passing something over that's complete and that has been done in a way that somebody else can review it. So, so a nice, neat schematic or the documentation provided makes this a lot easier. You shouldn't really review a, an item without knowing what the spec is. 
because you have to have a gold standard to then review it against. What what was the purpose of this? Is is, is something missing? What's that supposed to do? Without becoming arduous, but you must have designed it to a spec in the first place. So what is that spec? And then does that do the thing that you want? And I think use it as a learning exercise. Use it to increase your knowledge. Use it to get a sense check and to speed up your work. Don't worry that someone else is going to go, you're an idiot because you've done a thing. There's always things that we don't know, that people don't know, that I think it, it can become a little bit, or, or I'm having my homework marked. But really, what you have really is someone put your arm around you to go, you see that thing there? I think there might be a problem. Can we talk about it? Because the reviewer might not be right. The reviewer might just go, there's a thing, I'm unsure of that thing. Maybe we can simulate it. Have you built one? Where's the results? And so it's not necessarily a, the reviewer is right and the designer is wrong. It's, again, that team coming together to say, let's de-risk this as much as possible and make sure it's, it's going to be good when it goes out. Other trap that some people fall into is just because it's been reviewed doesn't mean that you can avoid doing testing. So a design review makes sure that the thing that you're making is more likely to function, but it is not a substitute for then going out and doing robust testing beyond that because devices don't function necessarily as expected or there's a hidden errata. Data sheets are so complicated. So if you can find the footnote on page sort of 340 of a, of a data sheet, you know, you, you, it's likely that may have been missed. And so building it, there's a compromise between reviewing it for a long while and building it. If, you, if you're reviewing it for more than a few days, I would suggest you probably got it wrong. Get the main things out of the way, get it functional, get it built and you'll find out a lot more at that point but you want to make sure that have you got the pen out to the devices right oh if you've got a big bga on there make sure the sort of power and ground of the signals are there because if you've got that role you're scrapping the board possibly it's getting those large ones out of the way okay well moving on to more general focus what do you consider to be the most important quality that a design engineer should have and why we thought about this we discussed it within the team as well of what what single attribute, what single quality? And we couldn't answer it with one single thing. And so I think there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of, the successful engineers at Ignis have engineering as a passion. They, it, it, it is mostly their hobby that they get to do on a daily basis and get paid for, more than it's a thing that they do and then leave at home. I think during the pandemic, it, it served us really well because like, can you all just work at home in your home office, lab, garage, shed and not come in? It was like, yeah, we can do that. That's fine because they've got all of that experience. So I think it's, it's that that passion which drives continuous knowledge and development and reading around the subject and knowing what you're doing. There's also a dependability. So do what you say you're going to do. And if you don't think you can do that, say, I'm not sure. I can't. I might not be able to deliver that for Tuesday because there's a thing is far better than saying confidently yes absolutely it will be not really knowing and the other one's humility no matter how much you know you don't know enough you can never know every single thing and knowing that it's okay not to know and there's a wealth of resource out there and that you can ask other people and you can google it and you can talk to the device manufacturers and the distributors and you can drag an fae in all of that, I think, makes a good design engineer. Okay, well, with the current supply and demand concerns that you discussed earlier still in mind, 
What are your predictions for the future of design engineer and product manufacturing? In other words, how do you think that members of the industry will fare over the next few years of life after lockdown? I think the tech boom's going nowhere. There is so much demand for integration, IoT, can we automate it? How do we do this remotely? The demand for technology type products to solve meaningful problems, I think is going nowhere. And what we're seeing now is device manufacturers are bringing online newer devices. And those newer devices don't have all of that demand from now back five, 10 years. So the availability for newer devices that may be in sort of beta stage or maybe just, just coming onto the market is better than some of the older devices. We're also seeing that manufacturers have now had a little bit of time to react and start to ramp up some of the, the availability. So I would think that over the next, I think probably this first half of the year, it's not going to be pretty. People, it's still struggling to find supply. It's still possible to do. It means that you have to look a little bit further afield. It means that you're, you're less familiar with that component that you would never have dealt with before. But you have, and you have to do your due diligence on that and making sure that that is good, both strong, both commercially and it's suitable and it's of the recent right quality. Yeah, but on that, does that not open the door to counterfeits? Oh, you have to go via proper manufacturers. And I, I would steer clear as much as possible of grey market, black market, buying reels. You don't know how they've been handled. You don't even know what's in the box. You don't know that the first one on the reel is going to be the same as the last one on the reel. I think if you are desperate, then there are things you can do to verify. You can x-ray, you can build some, you can sample some. But I think you need to go into that with eyes open and not just assume that I've bought a thing that happens to have the right number written on it. Because guess what? It's probably not that in the box. So you're absolutely right. Okay. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to this discussion? I think it's been a, it's, if you are developing product right now, whilst it sounds like it's a real, it's an insurmountable problem, it's not. I think continue to innovate, continue to develop, maybe use it as an opportunity to look and rationalise some of the things that you do. If you've got a, if you've got an item on your bill of materials that perhaps you could do without because it's a feature that you don't really use, that could be the thing that's stopping you making your products. May well be um, useful. We're also seeing lots more movement to people using outsourced design partner type approaches because i think people are realizing that they can't necessarily feed a diverse team to keep their roadmap going and they want to be able to pick and, and pull from different skill sets at different times and then put it back down again but i think it's a it's a really good time and if people want to reach out have a discussion we're always available to sort of help and chat through things and sometimes we'll talk and say I see what your idea is. It's not really right for us, but maybe you want to go in this direction. Maybe you want to go and talk to somebody over there. So get in contact and we can happily help. Oh, well, thank you very much, Richard. I've really enjoyed this today. And hopefully I'll see you at an event soon. That'd be great. Electronic specifier.